Welcome to Sweden in Transition, the podcast that meets change makers in Sweden. I am Sonia Lehmann and today I meet Lindsay Bryson. Lindsay has been working for MSF for almost 20 years in various roles and locations, mainly in Africa, Ethiopia, Haiti, Congo, and is now based in Stockholm. Médecins Sans Frontières, MSF, known internationally as Doctors Without Borders, was founded 50 years ago in France by a group of journalists and doctors. And this NGO is now a worldwide movement of nearly 65,000 people. It provides medical assistance to people affected by conflict, epidemics, disasters or exclusion from healthcare. We recorded this episode just before the war started in Ukraine. Since the fighting broke out, MSF's team have been working around the clock to meet urgent needs. Getting the right medical supply at the right place, preparing staff for large influx of injured people, but also looking at the needs of the thousands of people who have fled the fighting, starting mobile clinics to provide basic medical care. Now I leave you with this initial episode, as this particular context makes it even more interesting. We spoke about the principles that govern humanitarian work, specifically how MSF maintains its independence. We also talked about the humanitarian crisis around the globe and their colonial and post-colonial origins and how they are impacted by climate change. Hi, Lindsay. Welcome. Hi, Sonia. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to see you, especially face-to-face -face for this conversation. I'll start with my usual question. The podcast is called Sweden in Transition. What does the word transition mean for you? When I think about transition and reimagining the humanitarian space, I think a lot about the, the structural power imbalances and, and the concept of the white savior. I think the impression that is generally put out in the world is that a humanitarian is someone who comes from the north, from the west, who comes with power and knowledge and skills and just sort of brings this into another country and help the poor and the uneducated and the vulnerable. But I think it's not, I don't find that relevant anymore. Of course, there is a system where we're trying to support populations, but I think we need to flip this around more. And I know as an organization, we're really working on this to try to engage much more thoughtfully, much more constructively with the people in the countries where we're working, that we try as best as possible to not work outside of the systems, to try to work with national governments and ministries of health and local communities to really try to understand the problems through the eyes of, of those patients and of those populations. Hmm, it's very interesting. Before we started recording, you mentioned how the situation and the difficulties have actually a long history. Can you develop that a little bit? I mean, I certainly don't consider myself an expert in the area, but I mean, I think for people who understand a little bit about the, the colonial history and how governments, kingdoms of various European countries, how they took over and colonized many of these countries where we now work, did not, let's say, allow for a strong government to come out of this. And even in the post-colonial era where they were hands-off, but really still very hands-on and driving the the directives and the strategies of particular countries, thinking about the the resources that were that have been taken from so many 
different countries in, in Africa in particular, I'm thinking about, which means that they don't have the resources. They, they did not invest adequately. They didn't have the systems. They were governed by very inadequate people who were backed by foreign forces, but it all plays into, of course, a country should be able to manage this. Of course, a country like the DRC, Democratic Republic of the Congo, they have massed resources, but their infrastructure is so weak. And this is really linked to years of, of civil war and civil unrest and a population that has virtually no access to health, no access to education. So how do you improve society within that context? And it becomes this horrible, vicious circle. Um, and I think it's a real struggle for, for anyone to come out of that. We can mention colonial history, but also the economic system, how it works today. A lot of industries have invested in those countries, not giving them the means to develop themselves. Well, again, I guess the power imbalance, right? So you're, a foreign company is giving rights to a mining in a particular country, and then they get a, a huge proportion of the profits from the extractions from those companies, and very little ends up actually going back to the population of those countries. Why can't a country do that extraction themselves? Why can't we actually be going in and saying, well, why don't we pay your workers the same as we pay our workers? So again, it's always always that imbalance. I mean, we buy the whole clothing industry, right, to go completely off track. The whole clothing, it's the same thing, right? We we outsource the, the labor, we pay people very low rates, and then we get our nice clothing. Again, invest in the population and, and be able to educate them so that they can rise if you can become a strong nurse or a strong doctor, if you can become a, a, a lawyer. You know, you need that certain echelon of a, of a country to be able to govern it appropriately. Um, and I think there's just many examples throughout the way of where you see that just wasn't ever adequately implemented. It's not worthwhile anymore having a factory in a developing country if these countries start to have the same wages. So it's like our whole globalized capitalist system kind of need yeah. Yeah, exactly. the inequality to remain. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Wow, that was a start. <laughs> a start. <laughs> Before we start speaking about MSF, I'd like to know more about your own journey. I mean, I started training as a nurse without necessarily the intention to work in the humanitarian sphere. It came in quite quickly, though, once once I started my training. And in my third, my third year of my um, basic nursing training, I was selected to go on a project to Benin in West Africa. We were there to support in, in a health center and to see how it functioned and to try to understand the health system in that context. And it was through that first experience, which was definitely more on the developmental side, um, though I think at the time I probably didn't get the distinction between humanitarianism and, and development, but it really kind of triggered me to see that I could actually use my skills as a nurse for a, a broader purpose. Yeah. You mentioned the distinction between humanitarian and development. Yeah, I mean, I think the easy answer there is, I mean, humanitarian is in a bit more of a an emergency setting. There's a bit more nuance to it, but it will be in a setting where you've got a refugee influx or a nutritional crisis or a, some form of disaster and you will go in. In theory, it is a more short-lived intervention. In practice, though, that's not really the case because we are seeing globally just so many protracted crises that still require um, a more humanitarian approach. It's not about fixing the system. 
It's about addressing the needs in the moment. So a development program will look at much more longer term sustainability of activities within that environment. So you'll see lots of development programs around education. How do you improve the education system? Um, How do you help farmers plant appropriate seeds? Or how do you upscale their tools? Or how do you look at longer term uh, water and sanitation structures? So for me, the easy answer is emergency and non-emergency or shorter term and longer term. And development is really the idea of giving them the tools to address the issue. The tools and the knowledge It's not giving fish, but teaching how to fish. Yeah. And uh, what were the highlights Mm. uh, during your time on the field? I found this one hard because I, I, I struggle with centering myself in that narrative because I feel like the, the work is obviously I do get something out of it, but it's not about that. It's about what I'm able to provide, um, in terms of the the work that we do. But I do think that for me, what I felt so absolutely privileged is meeting so many different people from so many different um, cultural contexts, so many different, from different socioeconomic groups, from different religious groups, from just different people who have had lived just incredibly different lives from me. And that we all end up working in the same location. So I think learning um, how to step back how to look at a situation, trying to look at a situation through someone else's perspective and how they're analyzing a situation. It, it also has given me some, some space to, to have more humility. Those interactions with different people has broadened my horizon enormously. And I think more micro level, I, I think working in, in nutrition crisis has been incredibly interesting for me it's very complex medical interventions that are required when you're dealing with uh, malnourished people but what i found amazing was that you have often what appears to be miraculous of of results that you think wow wow this person is walking out of here and it's just it's i mean it's incredible but at the same time we haven't changed the context from where they came from. So you're, you know, if the rains didn't come and the, the crops failed and there's no food on the market, you've healed a person, but then you've sent them back out into that. And while, of course, there's a broader humanitarian and development system who will try to be stepping in to uh, make various foods available, it, of course, is never perfect. So I, I think that's a bit of a double-edged sword in terms of seeing how you can help people recover But then the context hasn't changed, and that's difficult. Yeah. How does it feel when you leave a country and the situation is still urgent and dramatic? We rarely do. (laughs) That's a bit the problem, actually. I mean, I think when we talk about some of the countries that we work in, um, you know, we say it's a humanitarian crisis, but a place like the DRC, I mean, we've been in DRC for years and years and years, the same with Sudan and South Sudan, um, Afghanistan as well. I mean, these are all contexts where we we go in and you think, again, short-term intervention, but the, the context doesn't necessarily allow for that um, for us to pull out necessarily. I think in places where I've seen that we have stepped out, so maybe not within a whole country, but maybe within a, um, 
a section of a country, so one program. Um, it's been when I think we've been really good at the start of engaging with local partners, because then right from the beginning, you're able to include others who are there longer term, um, giving them some ownership, giving them some responsibility so that we can kind of, okay, now things are, are calmer. You don't need, we don't need to be here and we can pull out. To illustrate, can you tell us the different countries where you were and what the mission was about? Ooh. So my very first experience with MSF was in Congo Brazzaville. And there we were what's called a vertical program. So we were focused on one disease. Uh, we were focused on just one disease called sleeping sickness. My second mission was to Burundi. And in Burundi, we were setting up a maternal and child health program. After Burundi, I went to Chad. And in Chad, we were working in a refugee context. So that was uh, Sudanese refugees. It was also my first experience in an acute malnutrition setting. Then it was DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. In that project, we had a hundred or so bed hospital, had maternity and pediatrics and emergency and an ICU. TB, HIV, so... Um, and then after that, I went to the Central African Republic. Um, this was a population somewhat on the move, so they were... There's always malaria. I think when you look at the under five mortality that we, we see, it is malaria in so many of these contexts um, and respiratory tract infections and diarrhea. So a lot of things that are preventable um, that we are unfortunately not always able to, to prevent. And then after car, after car, I don't know if we go into the more personal side. I met Oliver, my husband, in car, um, and then we moved to Canada. We had our children, and then uh, three years later, we went to Haiti. And Haiti was a what did we do in Haiti? Haiti was an emergency obstetric hospital. So this was actually a very different thing. This was based in an urban center. So most of my past experience had been very much rural, very much smaller, pop, spread out, but smaller populations. And this was very much focused on emergency maternal health care, uh, which was in very high need. Um, unfortunately, Haiti has had, a, a again, a very long history of of colonization, though they are the first, you know, slave country to win, let's say, their independence, uh, having fought a war against France, and they won that war, uh, but they ended up paying reparations for many, many hundreds of years back to France, huge sums of money that they paid to France to not be recolonized. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's quite it's quite a shocking history, actually that that part of it. But even in more recent history, I mean, they've been, uh, yeah, they have had dictator after dictator. They have had coup after coup, and environmental disasters. Exactly. Yeah. And then, of course, the, the cholera outbreak after the earthquake in 2010. I mean, just so many things that just bam, bam, bam. That they, I, I don't know how how they'll ever really properly recover. Uh, they lost so many people. They lost so many healthcare workers. They lost so much of their healthcare structure. And of course, it wasn't perfect beforehand. So it's not that a whole perfect structure f fell apart. It's that a very weak structure became weaker. And yeah, it just left the people in a very vulnerable position. 
vulnerable to a, a major outbreak of cholera, which claimed uh, tens of thousands of lives in the aftermath of. Um, and then after Haiti, Ethiopia, and our focus was more on on the refugees who were coming in from South Sudan. And then since moving to Sweden, I help and advise an innovation team on how we can best. Um, use our innovation methodologies and our innovation skills to improve the work that we do in the field and the work um, and the care that we provide to our beneficiaries. People think of of new flashy tools that you know the, the the genesis of a new idea. It's often figuring out how to implement an existing tool into a humanitarian context. So it becomes much more about process innovation. And all that within MSF. Can you tell us what is specific about this organization? This was our 50 year anniversary. It was a celebration, of course, for all the work that has been done and the the things that we've been able to achieve, but also, I think, a moment of really deep reflection of why we needed to be there. 50 years ago, it was a small group of doctors and journalists who had been in Nigeria during the Biafran conflict, and they weren't able to access the entire population. They only had access to certain areas, and they weren't able to speak out about it. They weren't able to talk about the injustices that they saw on the ground. And this was why they formed MSF, with the goal of really going into the places where most people won't, looking at both sides of a conflict, addressing the needs of people on the ground, regardless of where they sit amongst this this conflict, this issue that is happening. And uh, at the moment, can you mention two or three programs that are a top priority for MSF and describe what you're doing there? Mm. Um, I think, you know, globally, everyone saw what happened in, in Afghanistan uh, with the fall of the government and the takeover of the Taliban. And I think Afghanistan, as I said, it's a country that MSF has been present in on and off, mostly on for many, many, many years. Um, we've had in the last five, six, seven years, multiple attacks on our healthcare centers. We've had a major hospital bombing. We've had uh, gunmen come into a maternity hospital and, and kill 15 mothers and, and midwives. Just really horrendous things happening. But we've somehow we we've stayed we've committed to the to the country we've committed to the population and even now with this change in governmental structure if that's what we call it i don't know what we call it to be fair but that's what i think the international body calls it um that we still stay because we see that the population absolutely still needs the the support that we provide so i think that's a really important example of where a lot of our of our attention and our focus and our energy um, is going to. The other one I wanted to touch on is, I don't know, maybe it's a bit boring, but the pandemic, <laughs> the COVID. I think what COVID did, as it did in so many other settings, was it really, again, highlighted the imbalances that we have. Uh, MSF worked on COVID projects in the U.S., in, in France, in Belgium, in, in Italy, um, in all these places where normally we would say that's not where there is need for humanitarian assistance. But I think it really flipped, flipped the switch for a lot of people of seeing like, wow, MSF is working in my home country. So it was a lot about reinforcing the healthcare system. So in the U.S., they did a lot of work in care homes, in refugee and asylum settings. Mm -hmm. Again, quite marginalized populations okay. within 
our context, let's say. Mm. Of course, conflicts and epidemics have multiple factors driving them. But do you see a link with climate change? Yeah, I think there's probably examples in many, many settings. One that came to mind was in uh, Niger. I know they've had quite some experiences with both, again, drought and floods, back and forth, drought and floods, and kind of destruction of um, the the land that can be used by both farmers and, and the people who herd the animals, which then actually causes conflict among those groups. Um, conflict in any population is going to lead to healthcare issues. So there was a, quite a direct example of how the lack of land and then eventually the lack of food actually caused a conflict um, within that population. Another issue, um, well, natural disasters. I think natural disasters, while MSF won't formally say we think this particular natural disaster is linked to climate change because that we don't feel is within our scope of, of expertise, but we certainly are responding to what feels like more and more natural disasters around the world. Um, and we're certainly seeing changes in disease transmission, uh, malaria being seen at higher elevations than we would normally expect because it's warming up. It's not as cold. It's same with dengue fever, same with chikungunya and Zika virus. We're seeing changes in the pattern of disease outbreaks because of the climate changing. Um, so I think there is quite quite some examples like that. And how do you see the situation evolve in the future as mm. droughts and water scarcity and extreme events will multiply? I think it's a really tough question. We are looking at this. I think as an organization, we've spent the last few years looking at a lot of sort of mitigation strategies, um, not traveling as much internationally, um, implementing more solar power um, at project level, Um, looking at how to better dispose of medical waste and batteries at project level. What I think we're, we put less focus on, I think we talk about it a lot, I think we don't yet know how to operationalize it, is that adaptation um, that you're talking about. How do we, if we know that outbreak patterns are changing, how do we actually, how do we change to address that? Currently, we look at sort of the, the epidemiological trends and we try to predict, but those trends are impacted by changing weather, which we don't have the capacity to predict. So I think these are two things that still need to come together for us to have a better handle on how to manage in terms of disease outbreak, but also in terms of population movement. As more land becomes flooded or as more land dries out, you will see more migrants, you will see more movement to population. Um, and it's very difficult for us to foresee where that will happen. Um, so I, yeah, as a sh better answer to that question is, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how we're really going to be able to do it in a way that is more systematic than what a normal outbreak or emergency response looks like. Because in the latest IPCC reports, mm -hmm. there is extensive publication on this. Mm -hmm. So the literature is there. there. Yeah, exactly. If I think back to Ethiopia, I mean, we had a nutrition crisis in the southern part of the country in 2017-2018. And we had knowledge, if you could call it, in advance. We had, like you're saying, the, the, the research that out the, that is out there was showing us that there is decreased rainfall, um, there is likely to be um, drought conditions which will likely lead to 
lack of food and nutrition uh, crisis. But what it doesn't tell us is what volume. So even though we knew we had good enough information that something was going to be happening, the Horn of Africa was going to be affected, southern Ethiopia was very likely to be affected, but what did that mean in practice? Because you don't know what six months beforehand really looks like. In Europe, there are lots of things happening uh, around especially refugees. Is that something you're working on? There's multiple camps down in Greece where MSF has worked. Also, a search and rescue boat. We go out into the Mediterranean. We look for uh, people who are coming up, generally from Libya up to Europe. A lot of people are drowning in the ocean. Um, and we, we try to stop them from drowning, which we are often accused of criminal action for yeah. doing so. Pulling somebody out of the ocean who doesn't know how to swim, I have... I can't conceptualize in my own mind how that is criminal act, but it's incredibly challenging. I mean, we've had the boat stuck out at sea because nobody would let us come into port anywhere. Um, and it's not, I think, again, as talked about anymore as it was a few years ago, yeah. but it's still ongoing. It's still, it's still happening. I mean, this was, I think, again, if we talk about the independence of MSF and the position we took on this migrant crisis, as it was called, although in any other place, I think we'd call it a refugee crisis and possibly have a lot more empathy. But in 2015, I believe it was, we took the position that if the European governments were going to continue to have this strategy of pushback, so not allowing these refugees and migrants to enter Europe and actually funding foreign governments to keep them in other countries under often quite horrendous conditions, uh, MSF stopped accepting money from the EU. So we no longer take money from the EU because of this. Wow. It's a principle. For us, we found at the time that how can we have a voice in this conversation? How can we speak out against the EU if they're also funding our activities? So So at the moment, the EU is not funding MSF because you don't agree with their position on the refugees crisis in Europe. Okay. We're also a medical humanitarian organization and so we're also governed by the rules of medical ethics. But we're also in an incredibly privileged position that we have a strong donor base. The majority of the money that we get from donors is from individual people who send in 10 euros a month, 20 euros a month. Of course, we have other larger donations, but our bulk is these individuals who believe in and trust in what we do. And that gives us, the, again, the, the power and the position and the independence to take a principled stand as we did um, towards the EU when it came to the migrant crisis. So, and, and that's, I mean, that is a very big example of our principled approach, but we have many examples of it in, in many other places. We will say, you know, if we're working in a conflict setting, we will work on both sides of the conflict. We'll treat both the aggressor and the aggressee. It's not always accepted, though. Um, so even if certain funders might say, no, we don't agree, well, we have the independence to take that decision ourselves. Very few, if not maybe only one other organization has the financial power and security to do that. In France, we have Calais and a refugees camp there. I don't believe we are currently there now. I could be wrong. I don't believe we are. But most likely the activities we were doing was primary health care. Um, so again, just basic medical care for people who have arrived. A lot of mental health support. 
whether it's in France or in Poland or in Greece, that is the end of a very long and painful journey. Mental exhaustion, the mental trauma that people have gone through. So a lot of our work is around just mental health care, basic empathy to populations. Again, knowing that we can't change the context. It must be really upsetting when you think the situation is unfair. Mm. In Greece, one of the camps was burnt down. Such a lack of of humanity. I understand that it is an incredibly complex issue and I understand that there's concerns about how do we integrate so many people into a society and into a social system. I mean, I know that this is complex, but I don't understand how you can treat people who are only just looking for a better life with such absolute disrespect and disregard and I mean these are people these are mothers and fathers and children and they've been walking or traveling or they've been held in detention they've gone through so many things before they even cross the Mediterranean and then they get onto European soil and we treat them like garbage we treat them like criminals and it's just it's incomprehensible to me Did it happen that MSF hospital or settlement was destroyed by the local police? Our activities will generally be either within or right next to a camp setting. So if someone has come in and torn down the camp, probably they'll have somehow torn down our structures as well. Or they'll tell us that we can't enter. We've certainly been blocked from different um, activities. My question maybe to close is that uh, you're confronted with dramatic situations on a daily basis how do you manage the the sorrow or the frustrations or i'm sure there must be a, like a genetic component i'm i'm very pragmatic i'm very much seeing that if there is a little bit of good then that is also very good Um, I started my career in nursing working in oncology, uh, pediatric oncology, so I took care of many children uh, with cancer. Whatever the outcome in the end, I've been with them on that journey, and I've been able to improve that journey. So I, for me, that was always something that was obviously very difficult and obviously in many cases very heartbreaking, but I think you still get a strength from that of knowing that you helped a person through that process. And I see it the same with the humanitarian context. I know that I can't change geopolitics. I can't change history. I can't change so many of the realities on the ground. But if I can make sure that someone or many someone's have access to malaria treatment or have access to HIV treatment or can be diagnosed with whatever it is that's been bothering them for 10 years, I think that's a success. And I take quite a lot of pride and, and joy in that, even within the horrendous context that, that we work in. Mm, yeah. Uh, looking at, again, climate change and the biodiversity crisis, and how do you see the future? I think we have to stay optimistic, but I also think we shouldn't just sit back and, and observe, right? I think we should be taking action where we can take action, where we have the skills and the experience to affect some form of change. I hate it when we get into those you know, circular discussions about how crappy everything is and this is bad and this blah, blah, blah. but people don't take action to change it like we'll stop complaining and do something about it 
Um, and for everyone, it will be different, right? I don't, I wouldn't think that everybody is suited to the type of work that I do in the same way. I'm certainly not suited for many other types of work. And we all should be playing to our strengths, but all to be looking at what can we do to improve the situation in the world. Great. Mm -hmm. Well, it was a very nice meeting you and, yeah. uh, and I love this conversation. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Well, thank you very much. Thanks a lot to Lindsay for her time and for her insights. And thank you all for listening. If you like the episode, please don't forget to share it on the social media or give it a rating on your podcast app. And I hope you will be there for the very last episode of Sweden in Transition podcast, the great finale before the summer. Hello! Hey